so I hope you're you're well um, wherever you are in this this first day of practice. I'm accustomed on usually the Dharma talks of the first night, and after a full day of practice, you all look usually pretty pissed at us. That's the look, but but you actually look better today. Uh, and um, anyway, however energetically taxing practice is, however energetically taxing life is in this moment, I'm uh, appreciative to be with you and that you're here, that we practice and, and abide in, uh, in Dharma together. So at this, uh, this time, uh, each day we'll have some some Dharma reflections and um, uh, trying to to speak to your mind in in some way and you're of course tasked with determining exactly what to uh, pick up and investigate and what to leave aside so the the Dharma is said to be the the middle path, Majjhima Patipada, the middle path, and it's usually characterized as the middle path between two unwholesome extremes, right? The Buddha found in the archetypal story, like self-mortification on the one hand uh, didn't lead anywhere useful and self-indulgence on the other also didn't lead to what his heart sought. And so the path is said to be the, the middle path between these unwholesome extremes. But what I want to suggest and talk a bit about today uh, is that the middle path is, is also a path between wholesome extremes between wholesome extremes. Meaning the Dharma is not, it's not one. It's often found in the balance between two wholesome forces in the heart-mind. And so there is, as we've talked about, there is relaxation and there is effort, right? And how do those actually fit together? The Buddha spoke extensively about, about effort and renunciation takes some effort because um, the path takes some effort. It was a very popular kind of like frequently mentioned topic in the suttas. The path takes some effort because in some ways, neurosis is the path of least resistance. Yeah. Do you know that? feeling of like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do here, but I'm going to really have to rally the effort. Yeah. The energy to do it. And, and uh, yeah, it's like um, the habit grooves are chiseled in deeply. And so it's easiest not to push against that, but not pushing against unwholesome habits gets us into more trouble, right? And um, yeah, so effort, effort is key. 
but effort is definitely not the solution to everything. And there are ways in which we can be um, over, over efforting and striving in a way um, of a kind of compulsive self-evaluation that is unhelpful. And it's, it's very self-oriented. It's this, this sense of the over-efforting side is often me in this destitute kind of place and enlightenment out there that I must, you know, uh, effort towards. And there's a pain in that, yeah? And so for, for you in this week, what does, what does the balance of effort and effortlessness between effort and relaxation, rest, look like? What is actually, um, what forms of rest actually soothe the heart? When is it a moment to bear down? When is it a moment to ease up? And being conscious that we may not see the kind of fruits of the decision immediately. Yeah, it, it may not be so easy to tell like, oh, that was wise to ease up or to bear down. We just have to keep studying. The, the Buddhist path is a, a, a path of studying cause and effect. There is love and wisdom. Yeah, the other two other uh, wholesome factors that we have to find our way within. And generally, we're, we're attracted to one side or the other, to the, to the cool, clear, pristine, you know, uh, wisdom side, yeah? Or the, the juicy, tender, overflowing heart yeah the meta side the compassion side and in some ways it's it's useful to like go with what feels like the native territory of your own heart and so okay i feel like a love type or a wisdom type i'm gonna go with that but at some point we have to double back to the territory that feels less familiar. So I, I remember one, one yogi who is like efforting very hard, like really focused around wisdom, around insight. And it was a kind of setup in some way because the previous retreat, he sort of, there, he had a lot of momentum going. And so he's sitting this retreat, I think eight day retreat. And, um, and he's like really gunning for the wisdom, like trying to cultivate that clear, pristine, you know, mountain stream kind of clarity, you know. And, um, and you know, it was clear. It was like there was something actually unbalanced in the nature of the effort. And so we sort of tried to, uh, get him to 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 reorient uh, a bit more into a kind of relaxed focus on his body, and then I was quite touched. He came back some days later and uh, had given up on the kind of 
his natural inclination towards the, the dry, cool inside side. And what he shared uh, with me was, um, you know, I realized I can't feel my heart. That was so, uh, so touching to hear him actually uh, learn something new, something important about himself that was really a function of, uh, of relaxation, yeah, of relaxing into the body. And as, as Joseph Goldstein famously said, like relaxation is not the same as being casual, yeah? Right, so, so we're like, watch that, yeah? Watch the way the mind can become uh, casual. That is different than relaxed. There's compassion and equanimity. And so uh, T.S. Eliot wrote, uh, teach us to care and not to care. And even, even as I say those words, not to care, that sounds harsh. How, how could you stop caring? Is that not an abdication of one's ethical duty to stop caring? What does that mean? We do practice caring. The heart grows uh, dramatically on this path. And our sense of indebtedness to others and our sense of of duty to others grows, the circle of empathy widens and we see more and more of ourself in others, more of others in ourself. And at the same time with the care, which is, it's heart wishes and it's actual engagement. It's taking a stand in some way, serving the reduction of suffering in our lives. But that is paired with an acknowledgement that our wishes cannot govern the first noble truth, that there is suffering. Our, our, there, our wishes do not, do not govern the tides of pleasure and pain in the lives of others. And so there's a kind of humble quality of appreciating the, uh, yeah, that um, these two, maybe say wholesome extremes, compassion and equanimity, what does balance look like? I can feel it's especially poignant in this time as a witness to such enormous suffering and a measure of uh, helplessness that um, can even feel like paralysis. How, how do we meet this moment? How do we find our way with compassion, with equanimity? This is a dance between seriousness and play. Our suffering, the suffering of others, it's serious. That's serious business, right? To really sense in clearly to diff- suffering. We're using the word 
a translation from dukkha, um, unsatisfactoriness, the kind of friction in the heart-mind. Our suffering, in a sense, is serious. It's worthy of our seriousness. Our life is worthy of seriousness. In some ways, that's, that's at the heart of the Buddhist enterprise, is it's like it's a big deal to be alive. It's worthy. It's a worthy task to to take seriously this this human life. How do we live? And right now, it is a time of uh, yeah of of such um, uh, profound and widespread pain. A time of of grieving, a time of of um, yeah, of of losing. Even even if in a certain measure, part of what's being lost, if it hasn't been lost already, part of what's being lost is a certain kind of innocence. This is a uh, a therapist um, writing about conducting therapy online. They write, these are not the circumstances for which therapy is designed. The events that bring us into therapy generally have the decency to be compelled, decency to be limited in time and place. The global pandemic is global and it may never fully recede or it may be replaced by another. And either way, we will have learned what few people alive today know first firsthand, that despite our dams and cities, despite our weather forecasts, despite our medicines and ventilators, despite the vast knowledge and dedication of our scientists, the genius of our artists, and the scale of our achievements, despite everything we have built to keep ourselves safe, we are not. We can be undone, not only by one another, but by a strand of proteins. Therapists knew this long before COVID-19. Sit with people stunned for any, uh, stunned by loss for any length of time, and listen. Really listen to them. And it becomes clear that everyone will be confronted with grief and no one knows how it is supposed to go. So if nothing else, we have got good at consolation. We know how to comfort, how to help people speak the unspeakable. Perhaps I will find use for other old tools or the trauma of this pandemic will not prove as pervasive or persistent as it seems at this moment. But for the moment, this is what I have to offer those expectant, beautiful faces that are far away and so close. Help in cataloging the losses and at grappling with them even as they mount. I can only hope it is sufficient.
this is a serious time, right? And our grief, however this moment is landing in us, um, whatever the impacts are on our life, on the people we care about, on our sense of solidarity with the, our society, however this lands in our heart, there's some measure of, uh, of grieving. And I, I, I've come to more and more deeply associate spiritual growth and our ethical evolution, our growth as an ethical creature and as ethical societies with grief. That the way we let go, the way we develop compassion often, the way we develop insight, the way we release the clenched fist of grasping, the way that all of that actually feels in some moments is like grief. And our evolution as a, as a moral being, as an ethical creature, uh, this also actually requires that um, we open to the seriousness of suffering as it's lived right now in this world. And this kind of grief is, is an onward leading rather than paralyzing form of grief. It's not one that flattens us, but it actually enlivens our ethical commitments, our commitments to take our lives seriously. Pema Chodron said, grief is completely pregnant with bodhicitta, the awakened heart. Grief is completely pregnant with bodhicitta. But all of that seriousness is paired with incredible lightness, with experiencing our life, whatever time we have, as play, yeah, as play. The ego is very serious, yeah. The ego is, there is nothing funny about what I am and what I'm not. Yeah, the kind of heaviness and brittleness of self-definition, that is serious. That's serious in the problematic way, right? But we start getting freer of some of that, and then life becomes much more playful. We start to let go, we begin to discover some of the healing qualities of awareness, of abiding in mindfulness, of just allowing phenomena to arise and pass. And it's not like we're watching the show, we're in the show, we're in the show, not watching it from outside. This is uh, Rob Berbia. 
sensations, sounds, thoughts, and images, indeed all phenomena can seem to float free in this open consciousness, like fireflies flickering in the blackness of night, like clouds in the wide sky, moments of experience appearing and disappearing in the vastness of awareness. And just as physical space seems undisturbed by what appears within it, so the space of awareness rejects nothing, holds and embraces nothing, no matter what it is. A meditator can tune into this sense of the space and use it to deepen the letting go. As it opens and becomes more steady, it can seem more and more that all phenomena appear to emerge out of this space of awareness, abide for a time, and then disappear back into it, while the space itself can have a sense of profound stillness of imperturbability to it. Like shooting stars or fireworks, bursting into view against an immeasurable backdrop of night sky. Phenomena live for a while and then fade back into the space. So, we're learning to trust, uh, trust awareness and as we do this, what we call our lives experience becomes a little less imposing. Yeah, there's, there's some lightness in it. There's lightness in it. And we can move more effortlessly from play to seriousness, from the intensity of grief to the lightness of laughter. Yeah. And so how, how do you hold this in our days together? How do you hold lightness, seriousness? And then the theme that I want to dwell on is the 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 wholesome factors of uh, of opening and protection opening and protection so much of of vipassana is about opening That may even be what we what we think of first when we think about the practice is how do we open to our lives and one description of an enlightened person a fully enlightened person is that there is peace at every sense gate at the eye gate the ears think that the mind there's peace at every sense gate. That's a very beautiful image for me. And it depicts uh, something, a being that is very open to the world, very porous. 
and yet a measure of protection. Yeah. Michelle McDonald said, um, she said, we develop a relationship with everything so that we're not afraid of anything. Develop a relationship with everything so we're not afraid of anything. The heart becomes so steady, the confidence so unshakable, the equanimity so deep, the sense of, of mindfulness uh, beginning to, uh, yeah, dissolve whatever comes into the field, digest whatever pain arises. This is, um, this is one way of depicting how practice deepens and unfolds. And sometimes I've, I've likened it to um, something from, from uh, like the thera- psychotherapy world, which is a kind of like exposure therapy, which is an element of, of most psychotherapies in some way, where there's an attempt to actually um, because avoidance, because the unwillingness to develop a relationship with parts of our life, parts of our behavior, parts of our mind, fragments of ourself, because our unwillingness to develop a relationship constricts our life, a, a lot of therapeutic approaches and also mindfulness moves towards, we expose ourselves to the anxiety provoking thing that we normally avoid. And in a therapeutic context, we often would um, kind of create a hierarchy of the level of fear that we might experience with a given thing. So the example I always give, just a simple example is like, if one's afraid of snakes, you might start by just writing the word snake on a page, right? And then you would master that level of anxiety and then move up and then you might uh, see a picture and then master that and then see a video and then walk by the pet store and then, you know, graduation day is the boa constrictor wrapped around your shoulders, you know, is triumphant, yeah? And the idea is that uh, you sort of like get a bearable dose of distress. If there's too much, it's overwhelming. If there's not enough, no learning takes place. We don't, we, we don't de- become desensitized to the fear. And so we try to get the right dose and you try to, it's called you know, systematic desensitization systematic exposure therapy, working up a kind of hierarchy towards more and more fearful objects. And the Dharma, in a way, is a kind of unsystematic exposure therapy. We don't know what we're gonna get. We sit down, we don't plan it out, we don't know what comes. As we said more, as we practice more intensively, there's even less friction in the mind. And so we can really meet ourselves in new ways. And um, 
And it's a kind of exposure therapy, not just for the snake phobia, right? It's an exposure therapy for the everything phobia, everything, everything. Yeah, that in a way is the model of freedom. There's, there's no more bracing. There's no more friction in the heart. And so the path of doing this is the, the permission to allow more and more of the world into our heart, more and more of the world into our heart. And it's said that doing this, that, that uh, developing, like um, beginning to develop insight around this is freeing. It's freeing. It's said that the insight into the three characteristics of dukkha, anicca, anatta, suffering, uncertainty, unreliability, impermanence, and anatta, not self, centerlessness, um, that this is, this is freehand. So this is Stephen Batchelor. Letting go even momentarily and unintentionally of that desperate and obsessive grip on self does not obliterate you, but opens you up to a fleeting and highly contingent world that you share with other anxious creatures like yourself. This can be frightening, for the only certainty in such a world is that at some point you will die. You realize that yourself is not a fixed thing or personal essence, but a tentative and confused story hastening towards its conclusion. This might prompt you to scurry back to the familiar perceptions, beliefs, and routines in which you feel secure. But once the process of emptying has started to cling to such consolations will hinder you from feeling fully alive. To become empty is to encounter the raw, unfiltered contingency of life itself. The challenge of emptiness is to plunge into life's torrent rather than hover uncertainly on its brink. The opposite of contingency is necessity. No matter how ephemeral and insignificant I recognize this human life of mine to be, I cannot shake off an intuitive conviction that deep down my existence is necessary in the scheme of things. So maybe you hear that and you can sense the the potential in it. You can sense there might be some freedom in that. Insight by definition is freeing, yeah? But maybe you hear that, and as I read it, I could feel in my own heart, it's like, oh, this lands in different ways in people's hearts. Maybe you can feel that that, um, that to actually open to some of that requires an environment of relaxation, an environment of some sense of refuge of the mind being gathered, of some sense of faith, 
And so right now, the lessons, the lessons that Bachelor catalogs, they are on offer, right? The contingent, ungovernable quality of life is very clear. Everyone, in a sense, is seeing this. But to see it is not the same as having insight into it. And in a way, we have to create the conditions of heart-mind such that observations are transformed into insight. We create the conditions to allow this. I taught a, a retreat with, um, with Gil Franzdahl, and one of the topics he likes doing is, is a, you know, it's a week-long retreat on the three characteristics, the Dukkha, Nietzsche, and Nata, as I mentioned. But the first three days don't start with Dukkha, Nietzsche, and Nata, they start with, with well-being, stability, and self-confidence. The apparent opposites, yeah? Well-being as a counterbalance to the truth of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness. We open to the truth of dukkha from a, the basis of well-being. We open to insight into a Nietzsche from a sense of stability, rest, seclusion, refuge, faith, faith, faith in Dhamma. We open to anatta, not from a place of fragmentation and self-harshness and self-judgment, but from like a very tender appreciation for what we are our foibles and our imperfections and our strength and our power and all of it. We open to these insights from a place of being uh, uh, resourced. And so we, we prepare the mind for insight. We, we, um, find a measure of, uh, of protection with each other in the Sangha, with the rhythms of retreat. We find a measure of, of rest and relaxation, maybe even some sense of pleasure in the practice, some the heart delighting in some way. And that, that's really the only way that we actually open this, this side of opening the exposure of the heart to everything that might disrupt my peace. We need a certain measure of, of ease, of pleasure, and of faith, faith, yeah. Again, Michelle McDonald, so like... Uh, shared this, this story that I, I mentioned uh, recently in another teaching of, of a, a, a butterfly being born, a monarch butterfly cocoon, and the description of just this 
the wings still wet and just trying, fluttering a little bit and then flying back to Michelle's hand as uh, this, uh, just just after this, this birth that uh, Michelle was entrusted to care for. And, and she described this kind of movement of like the, the rest and then the effort, the rest and then the effort. And just before the butterfly finally took off from her hand for good, it, it rested most deeply. Yeah, so what, what creates a sense of rest, of refuge, of faith for you so that the heart might open more, become more porous? It's not from a brittle mind that we let go and let the world rush into our heart. So we'll we'll see. This is, uh, in a sense, uh, maybe something of an overarching theme this week. Like, what, what does what? What is this dialectic between opening and protection, between allowing the world to rush in and finding shelter, finding refuge for your heart? And as you determine the rhythms of practice, how you wish to practice during this time, how much more, how much extracurricular sitting you do, what what you um, determine supports you. You want to be sensitive to neither missing an opportunity to open when you feel energized and devoted, faithful, you know, ready, and, you know, just uh, there's a sense of refuge yeah, you can open more. You can open more to your suffering, to your goodness, to the suffering in the world. You can open more. And then other times we have to to move more closely inwards to rest. You know, like just last night, you know, even though we just sat for a short time, I was... um, I was already sensitive in the way I get on on retreat. And it required just a little different dance in, you know, how I I navigated the the evening and space I need. Yeah. So be sensitive in in your own uh, practice to this theme. So I offer uh offer this for your consideration and uh, maybe we can just uh, sit for a moment together.
Thank you. So uh, a word about um, uh, practice discussions, which will uh, begin uh, tomorrow. So um, maybe I will, uh, I'm gonna, I'll share my screen in a moment. So um, just to say that, um, um, well, for one, we, we made the choice to keep it mostly quiet today. There will be times for, for interaction, the practice discussions being one of those venues, but um, there will be others. And um, yeah, the, the practice meetings are, they're scheduled uh, during, during the morning time. So uh, we wanted to, to schedule them at a time when, when Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.